Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, because it is good, and it is right, and it is the best. So, Lord, would you take some of what is said, and Lord, combine it with your word, and by, this, by the power of your spirit, would you speak to us now, and we pray it in your name, Jesus, amen. So I want to say hello to you in the narthex, good to see you out there, and uh, for those of you who are watching online, good to have you with us. I once heard about a guy who wanted to rob a bank of America in San Francisco. So he walked into the branch and he wrote a note on a deposit slip. And on it he wrote, this is, spelled I-Z, a stick-up, spelled S-T-I-K-K-U-P. Put all your money, M-U-N-Y, in this bag. Well, while he was standing in line waiting to give his note to the teller, he began to worry that somebody may have seen him writing that on the note, and so uh, they might call the police. So he left the bank, went across the street to the Wells Fargo Bank, and uh, after waiting in line a few minutes, he handed his note to the Wells Fargo teller. Well, as she looked at the note and the misspelled words, she sort of presumed the guy wasn't that bright, so she told him that she could not accept his stick-up note because it was written on a Bank of America deposit slip. <laughs> It gets better. <laughs> so he'd either have to fill out a Wells Fargo deposit slip or go back to Bank of America. <laughs> well, discouraged, the guy says, okay, and he left. So the Wells Fargo uh, teller called the police, uh, who showed up a few minutes later and arrested the guy while he was waiting in line back at the Bank of America <laughs> with the same note. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> We're going through a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and today we're looking at the Eighth Commandment, which is, do not steal. Now, we'd all say that stealing is wrong, wouldn't we? I mean, robbing a bank or embezzling money or setting up a Ponzi scheme that robs people of life investments, that's against the law. It's the wrong thing to do, and people who do that should go to jail. But there are more subtle, even culturally acceptable forms of stealing going on these days, like taking a longer lunch than we're paid to, or playing computer games in the office when we're supposed to be working, or like changing a few numbers on our tax returns so that we don't have to pay as many ta so much uh, in taxes, or we might make a little bit more on our return, or like taking credit for someone else's idea or for the work that they did on another project, or taking away someone's reputation and their good name by spreading false rumors about them and gossiping about that person in ways that make them look bad. Or swiping somebody's self-image because we're overly and constantly critical of someone. Or cheating on a test or an assignment at stealing answers. Or manipulating someone and taking advantage of them in a way that is financially beneficial to us but comes at their expense. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to believe that stealing is wrong, but there are some times and some situations where it seems uh, that some people seem to think it, it's okay to steal. They're quick to rationalize. You know, it's not like I'm robbing a bank or other people are doing it or, you know, I deserve this. It should have been mine in the first place or my favorite. I'm not hurting anyone. Well, if that's true then why does this commandment make it on God's 10 list, 
his Big Ten list. Why is this commandment on there? I think there's a few different reasons. Um, but uh, it turns out, I, I think there's a bunch of commands, really, if you think about it, that, that could have been in God's Big Ten. Like, thou shalt put the lid back on tight before putting it in the refrigerator. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Or if the gauge is on empty, thou shalt go put gas in the car instead of leaving in the driveway for me to fill up. I like that one. Or how about this one? Thou shalt not cut in front of me into my lane and then slow down. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to slow down, stay in the lane that you were in. And now that I've said that, you watch. People are doing this all over the state of Washington. I mean, stay in your own lane if you don't need to use the one I'm in. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Now, those are commandments that really mean something. I mean, those apply to life, don't they? I mean, that's rubber hits the road, literally. Well, turns out not so much. The first reason that this commandment is in God's Big Ten is this. The stealing messes up our relationships. Stealing blurs the boundaries between what is yours and what is mine, so that what is mine and what is yours, well, what is mine is mine and what is yours, that's mine too. Stealing glorifies my desires so that I, what I want matters more, more than the person who owns those things, even to the point where I'm willing to deceive or to manipulate or do in secret whatever it takes to get what I want. Stealing is the ultimate act of selfishness, like murder and adultery. And the bottom line to stealing is that it betrays and destroys the trust that is at the foundation of every relationship, trust that takes so long to build up and which only takes a moment to ruin. Second, stealing messes up justice. When some things are okay to steal and other things are not okay to steal, well, that just, that just gets confusing because there are no clear boundaries anymore and because apparently the decision uh, to decide you know, whether it's right or wrong to steal, it's left up to the person that's stealing. And when stealing is okay sometimes and other times it's not okay, well, then that makes the principles of justice just really weak because every time someone steals, every time someone steals, there's a victim. There's always a victim. And an arbitrary system of justice means that sometimes we protect the rights of victims, and other times, well, sometimes it's just a bummer to be a victim. So get over it. And there's nothing just or fair about that. Third, stealing feeds our obsession with ourselves. Greater success, better titles, higher salaries, more stuff are the end goals of a self-possessed world and maybe why this command can sting so much when you think about it. Because it confronts our culture of greed and self-absorption and all the ways, no matter how subtle or sneaky, people might dishonestly gain an advantage or make a little more money. Where the line between dealing and stealing gets all fuzzy and just gets lost. Now, of course, I'm talking about the culture back then in Moses' time, right, when these commandments were given. Well, last, stealing represents Jesus. It misrepresents Jesus, sorry. Nicely said. The third commandment, <laughs> the third commandment is about using the name of Jesus well. And we went over that third commandment a few, uh, few weeks ago. This is about representing him well, reflecting his love, his grace, his truth to other people. 
It's about making Jesus look good and sharing his good name with other people. Stealing undoes all that, and it sends an entirely different message than the one that Jesus was all about. So those are some of the reasons why stealing is on God's top ten list. God cares about our stuff, our property, our possessions, the things we need to live. God cares about that. But he also cares about the stuff that other people have too. All right, that's the prohibition. That's the negative. That's all the part about why we're not supposed to steal. But as we've been saying through this series, that behind every negative, there's, there's this grand positive. That behind every time God says, no, don't do that to something, there's also a yes where God is inviting us into something, something that will make us free, something that will help us to thrive. There's really three ways to look at our stuff. The first is to say, what's mine is mine. That's selfish. The second is to say, what is yours is mine. That's stealing. The third way is to say, what is mine is God's. And so I'm going to share some of it. Because sharing some of what we have is the best way to get free from our constant need for more stuff. Giving away some of what you have to people who need it. The Bible calls that generosity. Now, surprisingly, this commandment doesn't quite capture our attention like the sermon last week on sex, does it? I mean, go figure, right? giving, it just doesn't seem to carry the same level of, of interest for us. Uh, Scott got to preach on sex last week, and, and uh, you know, they did a great job with it, actually. Uh, if you haven't heard it, I'd encourage you to pick that up. But talking about giving doesn't sort of hold the same interest level as, as that topic. And besides, talking about giving, it gets really close to the edge about talking about how much to, to give to the church. And I just want to put that baby to bed real quick to say, I'm not going there and won't be talking about that. Besides, I figure if Scott got to talk about sex, he gets to give the giving to the church talk too. <laughs> but the positive side of this command, the positive side is an invitation into the only way to cure us of our need for more stuff. Because we're meant for more than just living for ourselves. We really are. We're also meant for doing good for other people and sharing some of what God has given us with people who, who need it. And the joy, the freedom, the fulfillment, the sense of purpose that we get when we live like that, well, that's, it's just incredible. It's a great adventure. Now, there are two parts to generous living that I want to talk about today. And the first is this, to trust God for what we need. Now, the big theological word behind that is the word provision, which is simply a fancy word for saying that God supplies what we need when we need it the most. All we have, our food, our, our jobs, our salaries, our relationships, the places where we live, everything is a gift from God, even the skills, the talents, the abilities we have and use to earn a living. We have what we have because God has first given it to us. God will supply what we need when we need it the most. Now, my first preaching experience was in front of a group of teenagers uh, and adults who were in this Christian recovery program for uh, alcohol and drug addiction. After my first year there, the director invited me to, to preach. Uh, it was more than an invitation. It was kind of a requirement. Um, I'd never had a 
preaching class, uh, so I didn't really know what I was doing, which may be why I picked this really dense, compact passage in the middle of the book of Romans, a perfect selection for a bunch of kids who are just coming out of a drug-induced uh, fog, mental fog, don't you think? <laughs> well, I studied that passage. I prayed a lot. I took some notes. I wrote down some things that I thought Jesus was inviting me to say, but I was scared to death. And I, I felt really ad, inadequate. I, I was worried that I'd just go out there and mess up. Well, Sunday came, and while everyone was singing those praise songs to Jesus, I, I was just sitting in the back fretting, counting down the moments until I was going to be up front preaching. Finally, it was time, and the director got up, and he introduced me, started to say some things about my understanding of Scripture and how I could apply it to life, and that it was going to be a blessing, and well, I was turning around to see if he was talking about somebody else because I knew what I had, and it didn't feel like it was going to be that inspiring. So I got up. I thanked everyone for the privilege of being able to preach, which was a total lie. <laughs> but that's next week's commandment. We'll deal with it then. And then I invited everyone to turn with me to the book of Romans, which was fine, but somehow between the time that I had stood to walk up to the podium and the time that I had actually got there, the book of Romans had completely fallen out of my Bible because I couldn't find it. It was nowhere to be found. I turned the pages of my Bible one way and turned them back the other way. <laughs> I couldn't remember where Romans was. Was that, was that Old Testament? Was that New Testament? Where is this thing? Yeah, I'm not sure how I finally found the book of Romans, but by the time I did, I needed to change my shirt because it was really hot in there. <laughs> well, I, I read this passage, and I prayed, and I looked at those people sitting there, and my brain went blank. I mean, I forgot everything, my name, what I was doing there. Finally, I remembered I had a manuscript, and that I should probably read that. So I did, but the problem was that in the interim, I'd apparently forgotten how to read because every word... <laughs> Yeah, and I'm stumbling over stuff, and the stuff I'm not stumbling over, I'm skipping. I, you know, I'm just forgetting. And, and so nothing coming out of my mouth is making any sense at all. It's like I'm speaking this foreign language. They don't know what I'm saying, and I don't know what I'm saying. Well, these welcome, you know, these grins that were on everybody's face when I was introduced uh, had turned into Christian grimaces, which are kind of those frozen face smiles where the outside face is not really reflecting the inside voice, but it's losing the battle, you know. <laughs> When's this guy going to be done, you know. So I just gave up, said I was sorry, and, and sat down. And I died a million deaths as I was sitting there through the rest of that service. You ever been in a place like that? where you just thought, man, I do not have what I need to be successful, or what I have is just not going to work in this situation. And you find yourself living more in fear than in faith. You ever been there? I've heard it said that the richest place in all the world are the graveyards, because there, buried and laid to rest, are all the gifts, the talents, the skills, the visions that God has given his people, but which were never used. Because like me, they were afraid to use what they had. They were afraid that they didn't have what they needed. They, like me, they, they just didn't have the courage to use the little bit they had. Living in fear and not in faith, 
that God could use what they had no matter how little it seemed, no matter how inadequate they felt. I think the only way to overcome times like that is just to keep trusting, to hang in there, and just to keep trusting, even in the midst of our failures. You've heard it said from up front here many times that failure is not fatal. It's directional. And I believe God uses our failures to build his character in us, to show us more about who he's designed us to be, and to show us and lead us more into his purposes for our lives, even his rescue operation, how we can be part of that. That experience, it made me stronger. I think it made me a better pastor. I hope it made me a better speaker. The first part to generous living is trusting God that he can use what we have, little as it seems, inadequate as, it we, uh, as we might feel, that God can use it all. But there's something else, something else that happens when we trust God, when we really trust God, something even better. You see, when we really trust God, then God becomes the center theme of our lives, the main subject of our life story. And what we do with our story, how we write our story, how we live our lives, it all begins to center around our trust in God, loving Him, serving Him, believing in Him to take care of us. And when we can count, and, uh, when we can count on God to provide, here's the thing, when we can really count on God to provide, then we don't have to hold on so tight to the stuff that we have. We are free to let go because we can trust that God will provide more to come. Which brings me to the second part of generous living. Sharing some of what you have with people who need it. Now, someone once said that there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other way is to need less. I would say there's a third way, to share some of what you have, to give it away. Most of you know that our church provided funding for the Center for Champions in Rwanda, and we uh, provided that funding through a capital campaign called the Ripple Effect. The center is a campus for street children, or actually former street children. In the year that they were clearing the land, getting ready to build the building there, uh, I was there with a group from our church. And on our last night there, there was a number of teenagers that came forward. They danced for us. And then after they were finished dancing, one girl gave her testimony. And she shared with us that she'd been living on the street and was forced to turn to uh, prostitution in order to survive. But then she said one day she came to a meeting where, ironically, interestingly enough, it turned out that there was a group from our church leading a worship service. And the preacher invited the kids to come forward to give up their life on the streets and to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, she came forward, and her life totally changed. She started school. She found a place to live. She stayed away from prostitution. And now that young woman has hope. And now that young woman has a future. She once was lost, but now she has a whole eternity in front of her. She once was a child of the street, but now she's a child of the living God. She was once stolen and, and used by men, but now she's been rescued and loved by the only one able to love her enough that he would give his life for her. There are so many stories like that at the Center for Champions. And this last September, I was there with another group from our church. 
And we uh, spent a good portion of our time visiting with the kids. There's 150 kids there today. And uh, we heard about their stories. We took some pictures, and uh, we put some profiles together. I just want to share some of those with you here. There's James. He says, life completely changed for me since coming to the center. Now I have family, and I am someone's child again. I feel loved by God, and I have hope for the future. And there's Ernestine. My father was murdered during the genocide in 1994. I came to the center when it opened, and I finished the catch-up curriculum last year. When I was at the center, I enjoyed a Bible study and choir. This year, I'm able to go off campus to study hotel management. When I graduate next year, I'll move back to Kigali, which is the capital city, find a job, and be able to support my little sister in school. There's Jean Baptiste. Before I came to the center, I had no friends and no place to live. Now I have a place to live, and I have friends. Since coming here, I can read and write, and my favorite subjects are English, math, and science. Pray for me, because I don't have a sponsor, and that God will help me stay away from alcohol. And there's a guide. I was on the streets before coming to the Center for Champions, and now my life is stable. I've finished catch-up, and I'm studying mechanics school. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to study. In my free time, I love soccer. Please pray that I can have a good life after I leave the Center. And then lastly, there's Adeline. My father died during the genocide, and my mother is too poor to pay for my education and support. I've been a good student and leader of the girls' students. I've been going off campus to secondary school, studying computers, physics, biology, math, and anything else I can. I write songs for my choir. I am very happy. To her sponsor, she writes, it will be, I will be a great woman in this country someday. Now, if you want to learn more about the Center for Champions, we have a booth out in the Narthex. You can talk to somebody who just went there. If you want to sponsor a kid, they can help you do that too. But there are 150 kids there at the Center, and the Center for Champions is there today because of you, First Presbyterian Church of Bellevue, because of your generosity. And because of your generosity, there are kids there whose lives, whose eternities have been changed. Living generously. That's what you've been doing. And we can live generously uh, in more ways than just giving uh, financial gifts and giving of our money. We can live generously by giving our time to tutor a kid through one of the ministries here at the church. We can live generously by stopping and just helping someone at the grocery store or in our neighborhood who, who recognize needs some help. We can live generously when we give the gift of encouragement to someone who, who needs encouragement, like a coworker or maybe a teacher at our kid's school. We can be generous by uh, looking around, and maybe there's a young couple you may know, a young couple with kids who could really use the gift of a night away from those kids. So you offer babysitting, you know, so they can go out and just do that thing. Generosity takes a lot of shapes, and it takes a lot of forms. So I have a challenge for you. You ready? Is this on? Hello? <laughs> Here it is. Each day this week, will you ask God to help you do one generous thing each day? Just to pray about that. Each day that the Lord would lead you in such a way that you could do one generous thing every day this next week. Pray about it. Watch for opportunity, and if you do it, 
I'll bet you you are going to have a really great week.